I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. She set out to write a book on African American travel, but wove a much bigger story. Coming up, an interview with Candace Taylor, author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book, and The Roots of Black Travel in America. On the off ramp with Bob Smith. Welcome to the off ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Many Americans today are unaware that there once was a thriving, rising middle class of African Americans who owned black businesses, were black entrepreneurs, black professionals, or were black Americans with good jobs in industry. Once they were able to afford automobiles, they began to face new kinds of discrimination. The Green Book, published by a black postal worker in New York City, was one of many guidebooks that told African Americans about black-owned or black-friendly businesses where they could eat, sleep, and fill their gas tanks in safety as they traveled. Our guest today, Candace Taylor, set out to write about the Green Book. But as she began traveling to sites of all the Green Book businesses and finding most of them in horrible neighborhoods and dilapidated conditions, she realized these weren't the same vibrant neighborhoods they once were. So she expanded her book in an effort to determine why. Why did all of that change? And the result is one of the best history books I've ever read. It's full of facts, but more importantly, it's got great stories. Now, there have been many great books about discrimination lately. The Help, a great book on domestic workers, but how many of us have been maids or butlers? And Figures, about black women who worked for NASA. How many of us have worked for the space industry? But all of us understand driving. We understand the freedom of getting in your car and going wherever you want. Now imagine not being able to take a car you own on the road in this country without harassment. Imagine how you'd have to plan a cross-country trip knowing there are places you couldn't eat, sleep, 
or get your car fueled or repaired. These are all things the Green Book helped black Americans do. And when you follow that black trip planning step by step, you put yourself in other people's shoes and learn what racism truly means. The book's title is Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America by Candace Taylor. And it's being hailed as one of the major books of 2020. As a history book, it certainly opened my eyes. We spoke by phone just 13 days after it was published. Appropriately, our conversation took place on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. My thanks to Boswell Books in Milwaukee for helping make this interview happen. You have done a a remarkable job of creating, you've gone beyond just the Green Book to do a social history of African-American life in the 20th century. And uh, I never really experienced history from the African-American point of view as I have in reading your book. So I have to give you a big compliment on that. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, it was a tall order. (laughs) I made it much more complicated. Um, Yeah, when I pitched the idea to Abrams and, you know, I had my proposal together, it was just going to be a book about the Green Book. But once I really went to all of these neighborhoods and saw where these Green Book sites had been clustered, you know, I could literally see the scars of redlining and urban renewal on these communities. You can tell that this wasn't the America that Victor Green, who wrote the Green Book, was, was engaged with. And so by the time I sat down to write, I I went back to Abrams and said, you know, I really think this is a different kind of a book, and I want to rewrite my proposal and see if you agree. And if we don't, we can do the book that I pitched to you before. So they said, okay. So I rewrote the proposal, and everybody agreed, like, this was a better way to go. I love the way your book starts with the story of your stepfather being in the car, and the car is stopped, and the uh, law enforcement officer is berating your grandfather, basically, where did you get this car? And there's a story of the chauffeur's cap. And I had no, I never heard these stories before about these chauffeur's caps. Yeah, the story I had been reading about in the research that, and I just went in the kitchen one day, I said, you know, Ron, you know, I keep reading about these chauffeur's hats, you know, is this true? And he said, uh, yeah, and he, the story tumbles out of his mouth that, you know, it happened to him when he was seven years old, riding in the backseat of his parents' car. And again, I'd known this man most of my life. I knew he grew up in the Jim Crow South, but all of a sudden, these stories that I'd never heard, he tells me the last, um, about two years of his life, and the story essentially is, they're driving north, um, leaving Tennessee, just to go on a short vacation to to see family members and um, and they get pulled over by the sheriff and the sheriff uh, you know and they have a new car it's a 1953 Chevy and you know it's a nice it's a new car and um, his father worked for the railroad and had a good job so anyway the sheriff comes to the door and says you know whose car is this and who are these people with you and where are you going and um Lounge watching all this, and his father says, basically, you know, this is my employer's car. He looked at his wife and pretended he didn't know her and said, uh, she's the maid, and this is her son. I'm driving him home, which was incredible. You know, Ron just couldn't believe it, and uh, the sheriff said, well, where's your hat? 
And uh, his father said, oh, it's hanging right in the back office. So, you know, it's back there. And Ron said that chauffeur's hat had always been back there. He had no idea it was a chauffeur's hat. He just knew it was a black hat. He didn't know why it was there, what it was used for. But he said after that day, he saw it in most, almost every other black man's car he rode in. And especially if they had a nicer car, because they were driving a car that possibly a police officer couldn't afford. So if you had a car, you faked it, pretending like it wasn't yours, you were driving for your employer, and if it was a better car, if it was a good brand new car, the danger was the officer might feel jealous that you could afford something better than him and you were black. Yeah, that was not that was unacceptable. And that kind of jealousy could present itself in all kinds of ways from you know, harassment to murder. So it was a very real tool and a prop that saved people's lives on the road. You still told the story of the Green Book, but I love the fact that you surrounded it with this context, because I was reading the book just to learn more about the Green Book and this effort, but I came away with a much better understanding, as a white person, of what it had been like to live as an African-American in the United States for the past 100 years. It was fascinating. Thank you. And I'm so glad that that, that it worked. Um, yeah, because we still look at the Green Books chronologically through the book. Right. It's a very, the Green Book is very central to the book, but it's, you're looking at black history through the lens of the Green Book. Just what was the Green Book for African Americans? Yeah, the Green Book was a travel guide that was published for black people during the Jim Crow era. Started publication in 1936. It was published through 1967. It was created by a man named Victor Green. He was a postal worker from Harlem, seventh grade education. Um, he was a brilliant man. There were other black traveler guides, about a dozen other black traveler guides during this time. But what made the Green Book special and the reason why it was survived it longer and had the broadest reach of any of those other travel guides is because of Victor Green's brilliance. Part of that brilliance included Green's partnership with the Esso Corporation. ESSO, which today is known as Exxon, was a pioneer in embracing black travelers and black entrepreneurs, many of whom became ESSO franchise owners. Blacks could count on an ESSO service station as being a black-friendly place to stop, fill up the tank, refresh, and move on. He also had a network of postal workers throughout the country because the postal workers' unions were segregated, Mm -hmm. and black postal workers worked in black neighborhoods, and so he had this access to these businesses that were in these black neighborhoods, which helped um, advertising, you know, find more people to advertise in the Green Book. So he just stuck with it. Um, His wife, Alma Duke Green, was also a major factor, I think, in his success. 1959, she's actually listed as the publisher and the editor. And so she takes it over when Victor Green dies in 1960. Two people from the New Amsterdam News Melvin Tapley and Langley Waller, she hands it to them in the early 60s, and then they they finished the, uh, the tenure of the Green Book in 67. So, yeah, it's a fascinating piece of history that many historians, most of us didn't even know existed until more recently. So it's a really exciting thing for us to discover. There were nearly 10,000 businesses listed in the Green Book, so it's a real testament to, you know, black entrepreneurship and resilience. I love the way it evolved also from a travel and lodging book to incorporate uh, shopping, housing, uh, 
after the GI Bill, it was where to get an education, what kind of colleges would accept black applicants, because many, many colleges didn't. Uh, and you go through the black migration and the uh, American labor movement and all the way up to black incarceration rates. You talk about so many things. So what were some of the obstacles for black travelers that required a book like the Green Book? Well, the Green Book, you know, came on the scene, like I said, in 1936. When Victor Green's creating the Green Book in 1935, the Harlem race riot broke out, and even Harlem was segregated. So most people assume after the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s that Harlem was this black mecca for black folks. And in some ways it was, but it was still very segregated. And half the businesses along 125th Street wouldn't let black people go inside of them. Or they were relegated to, you know, the work, they couldn't sit in the orchestra seats or had to enter through the back. So even within Victor Green's Harlem, because the first edition is just about Harlem, so Victor Green really just was creating a solution for a problem he had right in his community. And Victor Green was also driving his wife Alma to Richmond, Virginia, regularly to see her family. And that was also a big eye-opening moment for, you know, thinking, well, we need this not just in Harlem. I mean, this would be useful anywhere you would go. And so that's when he used his network of postal workers to help him get more people listed. And by 1938, 39, he had every state that was east of the um, Mississippi River listed in the Green Book because as black folks traveled, I mean, there were sundown towns throughout the country and these were, sundown towns were all white towns. They were all white on purpose. Uh, they would have signs saying, inward, don't let the sun set on you here. Some of these towns had a bell that would ring at 6 p.m. to alert the local black people who were um, laborers to leave town. They could work, they could come in and work and leave by 6 p.m. So, you know, there were many challenges and potential violent encounters that black people had uh, to think about when they were traveling. And also, by the time the 40s come and the Green Book really is expanded after the war, you've got the second wave of the Great Migration happening. So you've got about 1.5 million black people leaving the South and heading north fleeing racial terror, but hoping for better jobs. And they discovered a lot of the same discrimination north that they had in the South, probably weren't expecting. Yeah, in some ways. The irony of even sundown towns, if you take that, you know, they were largely a northern, midwestern, and western concept. For instance, the state of Illinois had over 400 sundown towns in it. And yet there were only about 13 in the state of Mississippi. That's amazing. Yeah. So the, the North was by no means a safe mecca, you know, place for black people to land. And it became even more complicated in some ways because they didn't have the segregated signs of the Jim Crow South. Candace says the northern city of Chicago was a prime example of that. It wasn't a sundown town, but it had hidden obstacles for black travelers where you thought, like, Chicago would be more free, but, you know, you couldn't go past Cottage Grove Avenue, and you'd have to just learn by word of mouth that, you know, that you were going to get harassed if you were in this neighborhood, or that you couldn't, you definitely couldn't rent in most neighborhoods. There were only certain parts of town that you were really allowed to be, but it wasn't very clear. And the you... in the South, they were pretty straightforward. 
uh, that's right. You had a couple of, of anecdotes where people said, well, at least in the South, they were honest with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Our guest is Candace Taylor, the author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book, and The Roots of Black Travel in America. We'll be back with more in just a moment. We continue now with author Candace Taylor on the off-ramp with Bob Smith. Until you walk through a typical trip a black family might take, as you do in your book, you don't realize all the attendant problems black motorists and black families faced. There were garages that refused to serve blacks. They refused to fix your car. There were restaurants where you couldn't go. There were certainly motels and lodging establishments that wouldn't deal with you. Uh, If you had an insurance problem with your car, you might not even be able to buy insurance because you were black. Uh, I was astounded to learn that in parts of the South, if you are a black person and were driving a car, you could be arrested for passing a white person. Amazing amount of information here that is, one of the reviewers I read said it's a real eye-opener. It really is. Yeah, I mean, and the irony is, I mean, I'm a black woman. I've been a travel writer for many years. And, you know, I went to college and took a lot of black history courses uh, about 20 years ago. And I didn't even learn these things that I learned when I sat down to research this book. And I realized how much of our history has been denied to us. And not just black folks, but all Americans, you know. I think that that's a real, that's the real tragedy here, um, is that we have not been told the truth. There's this belief system in America that things just keep getting better, that, you know, that, you know, we just learn from our mistakes. And after the Civil Rights Act was passed, we just put the laws into place and we, you know, we made sure that you couldn't discriminate anymore. And and then life was better for black folks. And that's not what happened. I mean, things... There were so many different ways that the pendulum would swing forward for justice and then swing back. And so it made total sense to me after we had a president like Barack Obama that there would be Trump. And that's what the book really does. It it kind of follows that pendulum of justice when things got better for black folks. Ironically, in the 30s, things were much better in terms of, um, you know, the car and how much it was a symbol, not just a symbol, but a real physical tool that shielded black folks from segregation and also was an industry that gave black folks, you know, uh, wages that were really much better than if they had just been a porter or a, um, a laborer or a waiter or an elevator operator. So I, I wanted to really drive home that progressive racial uh, equality has never been traveled in a straight line Mm -hmm. in our history. You did that very well. And uh, what I found some of your statistics fascinating, the rise of the black middle class business people in the 30s. At one point, there were like 70,000 small businesses owned by black Americans. Well, where did those go? I mean, that's for a modern day person. It's it's an astounding statistic because they're not aware of this rise and fall and rise and fall, as you indicated. What are some of the reactions you've gotten from readers to your book? crazy because, you know, I was really underground for so many years. I never even saw people while I was doing this research. Um, I live alone. I, you know, I'm kind of, I'm a workaholic. So I've just been working, working, working. It wasn't until I showed my agent the introduction and she, you know, was floored by it. And she's, even she was like, this is important work. And, you know, this is, and I, so I had my editors, my agents very excited about the material, but until I got it, until it's, you know, now it's out, 
um, the response has been overwhelming. I mean, I, you know, LA Times compared it in scope and tone to Isabel Wilkerson's Warmth of Other Sons. I mean, I was hoping to write an important book, but the response has been incredible and I'm so grateful because, as you probably heard with authors, you just never know when you're in it. it you, you don't really understand how it's going to be perceived, and even the best books don't get this, you know, kind of um, attention. So part, partially I, I attribute some of it to Ron, <laughs> I do, um, my stepfather, because he died when I was writing, right when I set out to start writing the book. And even though he had been telling me all these stories over the, you know, years that I was doing the research, when I literally sat down to start writing, he died and I was devastated because um, he had kind of become my guardian during this process. And he was such a wealth of information and a window into this world that I was writing about. And, he, and all I could do that first week after he died was sit there and write his stories. Then I just cry and I just write and I tell my agent, I was like, I know I'm supposed to be writing a book now, but, and I had a crazy deadline to complete the book. Um, I said, but all I can write are Ron's stories. And then after that week, I thought, oh my God, his stories are touchstones for every chapter, nearly every chapter in the book. Yes, yes. And had he not died, right, I never would have put that together. I probably wouldn't have felt comfortable doing that. It just wouldn't have been something I would have done. And so I think he, he was the biggest gift in making it a more personalized story. Yeah, because you do insert Ron every so often, and it really does give a human touch, a human feel to the whole story. So because he was so guarded for a long time, you probably felt a little bit of an obligation to be a little guarded for him. But then when he was gone, you were freed from that obligation, and it let you just write. What a wonderful catharsis it was for you doing this, and also a great gift for the book as well. Thank you. Yeah, so I think that human touch really brings this book out of just a traditional history book. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think it makes it more accessible to, to the masses. So, yeah, I guess it all worked out. I couldn't have planned it that way. Well, <laughs> so, <laughs> the yeah. best things happen that way, I think. But you're right. The New York Times called it groundbreaking. Uh, let's see. I've got a number of the different uh, quotes from people. A moving, needed history, book form said. The Library Journal called it uh, essential. And I, I think it is. Uh <laughs> I'm sure there are many people, white people particularly, who are totally, totally unaware of the problems. And you mentioned that. A lot of your white liberal friends were like, how can this be happening? And you're going, look, I'm uncovering it. It's been happening over and over in one form or another. What was the greatest obstacle you feel you faced in telling the story? And maybe it's the organization, because you talked about that a little bit, and I did want to delve into that. How did you do your research, and how did you organize all this stuff? You mentioned note cards. Yeah, I was... um I rented this big loft, and they had a pool table. The condo owners, had this, the loft owners had this pool table, and I thought they were going to move it when I moved in, and they didn't, and I was kind of frustrated. I was like, really? So I moved the pool table to the corner of the room. It was still a big loft, so I had plenty of space. But all of a sudden, I realized once I really got into writing, there was this narrative thread of Ron. There was me on the road. Um, there was obviously the Green Book. And there was historical research. Um, there were all these narrative threads. And, and I thought, oh, my God, I have to color code all this. 
I had note cards and they were all color coded and I could lay them all out on this pool table, which was a godsend because then I could really see what was happening. Mm -hmm. And then I could see, oh, I need more green book here. I don't mention we're on here. You know, where can I? And there's a lot of quotes and other people that I'm, you know, other oral history interviews and things like that that were also, they're also threaded through the book. So it really helped organize the book in a, in a really practical way. The biggest challenge was layering the present onto this history. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that, you know, again, the pendulum metaphor, so that this wasn't just a time, a historic time capsule, something happened in the past. And how was I going to get from that story to mass incarceration, which is, I think, the civil rights crisis of our time now? And so it was a big, you know, in some ways, to me, it felt so central when you're looking at black social physical mobility, right? And how much more immobilized can you be if you, you know, be it by being in jail? Right. All of those things that we look back on and say, oh, how could we? How horrible. You know, thank God we don't have that society anymore. And yet the irony of us today saying that when we've got nearly a third of our black young men in jail. Yes, you mentioned that there are more people incarcerated in a prison system than were in slavery in 1850. Fascinating. It's, it's, been something, it's something that's been happening under our noses in the last like 30 or 40 years. And especially my white liberal friends would call me and just in tears and saying, they're going to lock up all the Muslims. You know, we've got to do something. And, and I said, you know, they've been locking up black folks for the last 50 years, mostly in the last 30 years since the Clinton crime bill. And yet nobody has called me in tears about that. Nobody seems to be alarmed about that. And it's not that people, Americans, don't care about black folks, but we have gotten really good at ignoring the pain and trauma of black people. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, there's that issue that we've never dealt with. But to me, when you see other marginalized communities, whether it's transgender people or you know, Latina people being um, rounded up or, you know, being separated from their children at the border. This has been happening to us as black folks, yet there's no outrage around it. Mm -hmm. So it was really important to me, you know, for the book to see it for what it clearly is. And if we want to say we live in a free and fair society, we have to deal with this. What America aspires to be and what it is are completely two different things. Well, I have to tell you, Candace, and I'm a white person, I remember as a youngster going through the South in the early 60s and seeing all those whites-only signs on the uh, restrooms and on and the drinking fountains. That's what I remember as a little kid and thinking, my God, this is horrible. And then the Civil Rights Act actually was signed into law when we were down there on vacation one summer. What was that? 64, wow. I think. And I, yeah. that struck me, what I was seeing all around there. And then, of course, I grew up thinking, well, things have gotten better, like most white people do. And you brought up the subject of mass incarceration early in the book, and I thought, now, how does this fit in? But you made me see it. You made me see it with the context of everything else in the book. So That was my biggest fear, honestly. Uh, that really was the biggest challenge of writing the book. I thought people are going to say, what does mass incarceration have to do with the Green Book? Yeah, it, it, it could be a turnoff, right? You'd think it yeah. could very much so. And, you know, maybe it will be for some people, but for me— uh, I, I got the book to read about the Green Book, and I got so much more with it than I ever counted on. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank and, you for sharing that, because it is a, you know, again, when you're sitting there writing, especially by yourself, 
even with good editors, you still just until you kind of come up for air, you, you're you're kind of wondering, you know, is it making sense? Are people really getting it? And so I feel like it's it's striking a chord, and um, I think it's you know again I attribute some of it to this kind of experience with Ron, um, and also you know the last the book ends with my mom, and I'm in the front seat of the car with her. Um, in the 70s, at the age of seven, the same age that Ron was, um, looking at a chain gang of prisoners um, in Texas in the sugarcane field. And I asked my mom, because I, you know, I said, Mom, I thought slavery was over. And she says, well, it is, honey. And I said, well, why are all these men chained up in the field? And she thought, well, they're prisoners. And I said, well, why are they all black? Because it looked just like, you know, I'd been in school that day, and it looked like the images of black folks in the field, working the field as slaves. Uh-huh. That's exactly what it looked like to me. At seven years old, I could not see the difference. And she said, well, they're prisoners. I said, why are they all black? And she could not explain institutional racism to me. I don't know if she even understood it at that time, or if she could explain it to me in a way that made sense. But at that age, I knew something was wrong. I was like, this is not right. Like, these men are chained up, and it just looked crazy to me. And that was in the 70s. And that was when we had, I think what, I mean, Brian Stevenson's work, he's done incredible work around this. He's another big hero of mine. But, you know, I think there were about 700,000 people in jail then, and now we have, like, 2.3 million. I think maybe it went down to 2.2 million now. Yeah. That's a great yeah. that's a great uh, coda on the end of your book that that moment with your mother and I had a similar experience in that trip to the south I remember the first time we went south we stopped in a, a place and of course they had Civil War hats it was 1960 it was the centennial of the Civil War so of course I bought a Union hat because I was from the north <laughs> and I remember looking at all of these stars and bars and the southern uniforms and I thought well isn't that wrong. Didn't they lose? Weren't they traitors? As as an eight year old, nine year old kid, I was thinking that same kind of thought you had, and uh, that never came back to me until Charlottesville and all of these things that have occurred in the South with the uh, Confederate flag, Confederate monuments. But early on, it didn't seem right to me to see every town you came into. There's a Robert E. Lee or some of these other people on these great granite horses and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, Majeska Simpkins. I write about her the chapter on women in the green book and she's she's a civil rights activist um from south carolina and she said you know they're waving that rag up on the state building there she's talking about the confederate flag uh-huh. and she's like they wave that rag up there she's like but you know i never fought to have it taken down because i always wanted to remember who was inside <laughs> that's a great that's a great quote yeah and that's the point it's like as much as we fight about this symbol it doesn't matter if the policies are still the same. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's the thing. America is so blinded by its symbolism. And that's what the Civil Rights Act was. It's like, we signed this act to end racial discrimination. And yet we didn't do that. I mean, there's still forms of redlining going on now. You're listening to an interview with Candace Taylor, author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book, and the Roots of Black Travel in America. We'll be right back. 
We continue with Candace Taylor, the author of the book Overground Railroad, The Green Book, and the Roots of Black Travel in America. I got a grant from the uh, from National Geographic to develop a, a digital interactive map that really traces black social mobility, and it really kind of picks up where the book leaves off in regards to looking at the last hundred years in terms of how, you know, I'm mapping lynching sites to private prisons to green book sites to all the socioeconomic markers of, you know, poverty, environmental racism, whether it's lead, you know, because green book sites were clustered in these traditional black neighborhoods. And so what happened there, you know, in terms of racial um, disparities and, and in terms of life expectancy, all of those things. And this map will show, you know, we'll see. But I mean, I'm also, I'm looking at where some of these sundown towns, those are also on the map. The sundown town in Illinois now, that's still predominantly all white, has a small percentage now of black and brown folks. But when you look closer, they're all in their private prison. That's right. They're in a prison. They're and not citizens. And the city gets uh, political benefits from that because they're counted as part of the population. Exactly. They get legislative perks and benefits for that. And, that and, and to me, you know, this is where it is so insidious and it is so relentless. And just as the you know, Confederates refused to secede, that's what this is. And I think that, you know, until we really understand, it, this would never happen. Brian Stevenson talks about this. You know, Germany would never allow this to happen. They wouldn't have swastikas all over the place. or you know, Right. There, there would be no tolerance for it. That's the, Not only have we tolerated it, we're, we're profiting off of it. That's, that's the obvious comparison to me, uh, having been to Germany. You don't see swastikas everywhere. The side that lost is gone. I have a couple other things I want to touch upon here. Uh, one thing I thought was fascinating, when you look back at the publishers of the Green Book, it's remarkable that in an era where there were no electronic social media, they could build such an incredible social network, basically. That's what the Green Book is, almost like the manifestation or personification of this social network they developed with people all over the country telling them about, well, this is a hotel you can go to safely to stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was almost, you know, the version of black Twitter, right? I mean, I think um, the way that Victor Green handled, you know, I, I can't, we still know so little about him. It was really hard to get. I did interview some of his family members, but they still knew very little about him. Um, but from what I could gather and what I did learn about him, um, he was a, he was just, Right, he was at the right place at the right time for writing a need that was so necessary for millions of people. And I think it was just kind of its own groundswell that just, it just kind of caught on. Um, but again, because he had SO actually selling the guide in their stations, and because he had, uh, and SO hired two marketing executives who were black, um, Jackson and Alston. That was fascinating, yes. Yeah, they were a ma- major players in spreading the word, um, and because he had all those postal workers, and there was word of mouth. So there were so many different, you know, it was kind of a, a perfect storm of all these disparate elements that came together that really made the Green Book, at the time, a, a household name, and 
then it's amazing how it just kind of disappeared from our, you know, from our history. And so many people, when I first started the project, so many black people had never heard of it. It was still new. To, so I think it was a, you know, the fact that the last one sold, uh, the Schomburg, I guess, got the last. It was at Sotheby's. I don't know what. It was an auction. Maybe it was Swan uh, auction. You okay. know, for like something close to $30,000. Wow. They're so rare. Well, they were like phone books from for the people using them. It's like a new uh, Yellow Pages. I don't need last year, so I would pitch right. it. And and I, that's kind of what they were, weren't they? They were kind of like Yellow Pages in, in terms of what they what they had in there. And, and uh, Esso, which became Exxon, I thought that was fascinating. How they and you traced that all the way back to John D. Rockefeller's wife, Laura Spellman. Think of that for a moment. John D. Rockefeller, America's first billionaire, the robber baron. He married Loris Spellman, a woman born in a house that was one of the stops on the Underground Railroad, a woman whose mother and father were longtime abolitionists. Spellman and Rockefeller married when she was a school teacher and he was a lowly bookkeeper, and her influence on her husband grew as his fortunes did. Eventually, the Rockefellers and their companies supported all kinds of efforts to empower black citizens, including the United Negro College Fund and the endowment of Spellman College, named for Laura and her parents. Spellman's alumni includes a who's who of African-American women, novelist Alice Walker, children's activist Marion Wright Edelman, and civil rights pioneer Coretta Scott King, the wife of Martin Luther King Jr. The Rockefellers were dedicated to civil rights. So, understandably, they made sure their Standard Oil Company and its SO service stations were black-friendly institutions. I had to ask that question, like, why? Why did SO care so much about black folks? Mm -hmm. Because Shell stations wouldn't even serve black people. Mm -hmm. And so how is it that ExxonMobil, or SO, Standard Oil at the time, um, actually hired black people to franchise their own gas stations? Yes, fascinating. And they hired black chemists. And they hired black people in every aspect of their organization. They hired these two black marketing executives. What was that about? And you're right. It, I traced it to Rockefeller was married to Laura Spellman, white woman who grew up with a house in the underground where her parents were fierce abolitionists and huge supporters on the cause. And I think, you know, we don't know for sure, but my guess is she was saying, this is serious. What are you doing for black folks? Yeah. And he, he stepped up. They were incredible. And, and why can't businesses do that today? I think the power of corporations you know, can be really, really significant. This is where they can actually do some good. That is a great corporate story you told there. It's a great mm -hmm. object lesson of what you can do for good with your resources. And it has come full circle, because now I have an exhibition with the Smithsonian that I'm curating, and ExxonMobil is our major sponsor. Tell me about that. It's going to be opening uh, June of 2020 uh, at the... National Civil Rights Museum, which is in Memphis. It's where King was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel, which mm. was a Green Book site. Mm -hmm. It was a perfect opening venue. And it's a 3,500-square-foot exhibit. It will travel the U.S. for three years. It'll go to 12 venues, ultimately. So every three months, it travels to a new venue. And what will people see? Well, there'll be... Yeah, it's called Negro Motorist Green Book. So it'll be about the Green Book... Um, but also these sites that will be featured, like Murray's Dude Ranch, which was an incredible 
the fact that there was a Negro dude ranch is just incredible. <laughs> Run by Pearl Bailey in the later years. Really? You also look at the original. Uh-huh. Pearl Bailey bought it later on, but uh, there was a black couple who first um, were the originators of that. They were from L.A., and they had this idea that they wanted to... Um, actually help wayward kids from L.A. There were you know, so many different um, to ride horses, and um, and there were two black um, westerns that were filmed there, and uh, it's just it's this incredible rich history. So there's things like Murray's Dude Ranch will be featured, also looking at the role that the automobile played in basically building up, you know, black culture and... Um, prioritizing, you know, giving uh, black folks a middle-class lifestyle. Um, there will be so many, there'll be my photographs and my history of, you know, capturing this stories and actually being out there, my photographs of the preservation efforts that are underway and bringing back some of these green book sites. The Hampton House will be featured from um, Miami. And showing the civil rights history and the struggle in way it's patterned after the book, after my book. So that sounds like that'll be wonderful. And Exxon Mobil is our major sponsor. It's our they're our national sponsor wow. for this exhibition. And Exxon Mobil was Esso gas station. So S O E S S O as we remember from our youths exactly. How many primary sources were you able to interview orally? I mean, how many of these people were still alive that had anything to do with the Green Book? Well, that was, you know, challenging, obviously. I did get a grant from the Library of Congress to capture these stories with an Archie Green Fellowship. Um, so that gave me, thankfully, the time and resources to do that. But uh, but I did find uh, quite a few, more than I thought I would. I mean, they, obviously, the people who ran them are, are past. Um, but their sons and family members uh, that are still running, like uh, there was um, Don Loper from Loper's Tire Service. He uh, still has his, it's in St. Louis, he still has uh, the automobile shop. Um, there was Leah Chase, who was Dookie, Ch- Dookie Chase's restaurant. She's the head chef, and her and her husband ran this Green Book site that's legendary, um, still operating. We lost Leah uh, about a month after I interviewed her. She was 96. Um, so that was an incredible opportunity to interview her. Um and then there were people like Majeska Simpkins's niece, uh, Henri Treadwell, who remembered her aunt so well. And there's so many stories about Majeska and videos and history that you can learn about Majeska. And she will be featured in, in the exhibition um, as well. But, you know, I think also putting a face to this history and realizing how rare it is for any business to be still operating, mm-hmm. even five years after it started, um, I think again is a testament to the resiliency and the genius of you know of black business owners that that story of entrepreneurship, um, as you mentioned earlier, you know it was like a yellow pages of black businesses and. Most of when you look today at how many black businesses there are compared to what there were, 
it's it's abysmal. It's really sad. And, you know, the irony, the last chapter of the book, um, of the double-edged sword of integration, uh, really examines that reality of what happened when all of a sudden integration did happen, when the bill was signed, and yet now all those black folks who could only go to maybe Dookie Chases or the Dew Drop in New Orleans could all of a sudden go to the French Quarter because they weren't allowed to go into the French Quarter before. And so, of course, once that happens, you know, these these places that have become landmarks in the community literally just start to disintegrate and they just are abandoned. And these were the black uh, well, the black friendly businesses, right? They were yeah, they're just they people just you know rightfully so wanted to see other parts of America that they've been shut out of. But you point out that even after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. When black diners went into a restaurant, they might be given a menu different than white people. A menu with the same items, but higher prices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at at every stage, at every turn, you know, we were shafted. I'm sorry, I don't even know how else to say it. We were, you know, even in the face of equality, it was never really equal. And there are some good stories, you know, we're where black people were thinking, oh, you know, I'm not going to, they're not, there's a no vacancy sign or, you know, they're going to put that up as I'm walking towards a place, you know, all of those things that did happen. Yeah, we had lost faith. And there were some great stories where black folks were surprised at the generosity that they received on the road. But in most cases, for whatever reason, as a country, we have failed to really show up and do what we say we're going to do for humans, you know, I, I just think it's a basic human need to be treated with dignity and respect, and um, and that's not what always happened for us, but I do know that we really have to at least understand and know our history if we want to stop repeating it, and to me, I think it was um, a woman who was interviewed for the Hampton House, you know, with integration, she was like, you know, we, we got what we wanted in terms of integration, but then we lost what we had because the, the and even Ron says integration was the worst thing that ever happened to, to us hmm. because not that you know, we shouldn't have integrated, but all of those things that made us, forced us really to have our own businesses, white people for the most part did leave us alone. Because they were like, well, you're doing that, your thing over there. And we did it really well for ourselves and for, you know, within our community. And then once we started to assimilate into white spaces, that's when it got very, you know, where we lost a lot of the, um, a lot of the power and a lot of the progress we had made as black folks. You know, there was a turn for the worse in some ways. So it's a double-edged sword. And the irony of that is also reflected in many of the uh, Green Book locations you went to, which were black-friendly businesses. Many of them are in horribly dilapidated areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly government policies. As Candace says, that's due to mostly government policies. We're all familiar with the GI Bill, which offered housing and employment to World War II veterans from 1944 to 1971. The government spent more than $100 billion on that project. 
and it's often credited with creating the white middle class. But you'll learn in Candace's book that, unfortunately, most black World War II veterans didn't benefit from those services because the government left the allocation of funds to the states. One example she cites was in 1947, the Veterans Administration in Mississippi distributed 3,229 loans with the GI Bill. Only two black men were among the recipients. Policies of the Federal Housing Administration also contributed to the problem. For years, it graded communities based on their racial demographics. The areas where black people lived were marked red and labeled D, a lower grade. So essentially, FHA loans were off-limits to most black people. And at the end of World War II, most U.S. banks routinely denied loans to black men. As Candace explains, not having access to bank loans meant most black veterans couldn't take advantage of lower-interest mortgages. So many black families were denied homes that provided financial security, retirement, and college tuition for three generations of white families. Taylor contends that's part of the reason why today's average white family has nearly 10 times the net worth of the average black family. Black folks with money and means when they could live in white neighborhoods or neighborhoods that had, you know, more of the suburbs or whatever, when they could move into those places. And not that they always could, even after, you know, like I said, there's forms of redlining going on right now. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, those who could leave did leave. And then, you know, and it left us, you know, more concentrated forms of poverty. But then you have law and order, you know, right after the Green Book publication, you've got um, Nixon uh, putting his law and order policies into practice, mm-hmm. and then Reaganism, the economics behind that, that really decimated black communities. Then you've got crack that came into the community, and then you have the Bill Clinton crime bill that came into the community. It just seemed like every decade after the Green Book Cease publication, it was assault after assault after assault on these communities. And now you've got mass incarceration. Um, and it is it is unreal. I think the level of poverty that I, that I saw when I got off the freeways and really went to these communities that once housed, you know, dozens of Green Book sites, and then you had urban renewal that wiped a lot of them out mm-hmm. with the freeways. It just, it decimated them. And the um, sad thing about it is when people of all races at different classes who, who are middle to upper class will look at these communities and say, oh, you know, it's just too bad that they can't get off drugs or get a job or, you know, or that it's, it's, it's somehow their fault that these neighborhoods are like that. And it's not. It's policies that we've put into place that we continue to support that have made this happen. And I think it's I think it's an equal responsibility of Americans and government to fix this mess that we've made. Honestly, you've you've given so much support for all that with all the things that you tell in your book. And you're not heavy handed in your book at all on any of the things you're talking about, like right now. Our guest is Candace Taylor, the author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book, and The Roots of Black Travel in America. We'll be back with more in just a moment. We continue now with author Candace Taylor on the off-ramp with Bob Smith. One story I do want to get in here. Your stepfather always liked to travel at night, and that frustrated you, and you didn't understand until later why he did that. 
drive me crazy because I thought, you know, because he was with my mother. And I thought, why are you putting my mother's life at risk? <laughs> You're going to put your own life at risk and drive all night. Because she would have to stay up and make sure he wasn't falling asleep. Um, and they would drive back to Memphis, to Tennessee, to his hometown. And he would leave in the middle of the night. And I never understood why, you know. And he always said, oh, traffic. That was his answer. You know, I don't want to deal with traffic. And I felt like it was just reckless and unnecessary to put yourself in that kind of position. And it wasn't until I started writing the book that I realized it was a lot easier. He would not be pulled over and harassed. As a, he's a very dark-skinned black man driving during the day. And he was a man in law enforcement. Yes. You know, so, you know, driving at night was safer for him. Driving at night, you were invisible. Mm-hmm. He was invisible. And it never, and he never said those words to me, but again... It wasn't until I started writing the book that it just, the light bulb went off. And I was like, oh my God. Or even another one, when I, anytime i go to his house, I'd be at their house and I'd be leaving to get on a plane, he'd try and load me up with food. And I'd be like, well, I can just pick up something at the airport. And I realized, again, later, after he died, I thought, that was a, that was a very privileged statement for me to just assume. Because even though he intellectually knew that was true, these were old patterns that were just ingrained in him like he didn't leave the house to go on a trip without food right they had to know if you'd get served you didn't know where you were going where you'd get served so black people on their trips would load up with food and thermoses and everything to make sure they didn't have to stop anywhere to eat you discovered multiple strategies people had who were black travelers that seemed to be so strange but when you when you finally put them in that context you understood yeah yeah, and that's what I wanted to share in the book. I really wanted it to be, you know, like a discovery of something that is right under our noses that, you know, you just until you really put those things together, it, it starts to make sense. And um, I'm glad that you found it really easy to read. I mean, that was a real, another, you know, hurdle. I have a master's degree in visual criticism, trying to take deeper theoretical concepts, but make them very simple to understand. Well. So I guess my... Student loans are were worth it. <laughs> <laughs> you did great. I tell you, I, I, you know, I always tell my wife one of my favorite history books of all time is Robert, one of Robert Caro's books on LBJ. And I said, I picked up this book because I thought it would be interesting. And I said, this is one of the best history books I think I've ever read about America because I learned so much I didn't know. And I would highly recommend it to anybody who thinks they love history and think they probably know a lot about history, unless you look at it through different eyes, you really don't know it. And and it maybe it's not just a black thing. It's just eyes of other people, people who are different looking than the predominant race. That's it. Makes a big difference. Well, thank you so much. It's just wonderful to be able to talk to you. All right. Thank you. Hope you have safe travels and uh, the best of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Candace Taylor, author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book, and The Roots of Black Travel in America. It's an amazingly great story. Highly recommended. My thanks to Boswell Books in Milwaukee for helping make this interview happen. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you join us next time when we return with more on The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith.
The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.